0: All right, this morning our scripture reading is in Acts chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 11 through 40. Uh, this passage introduces us to the context of our new sermon series in the book of Philippians. The Bible says, So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Nipolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay." And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation.' And this she kept doing for many days. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go, And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, These magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate the reading. So that's Paul as he begins his ministry in Philippi. So, uh, both an interesting and kind of ominous start, isn't it? He meets with uh, these women by the river, and he later gets arrested and beaten for ministering for the Lord there in Philippi. That probably happens around 50 A.D. And uh, the book of Philippians was written about 10 to 12 years later, probably around 60 to 62 A.D. So he hasn't been at Philippi ministering among them uh, for some time when he writes his letter to them Uh, Just to give you a little introduction to the city of Philippi, it's a Roman colony. It's uh, fairly influential. It was on a major trade route, uh, the land route, that would have gone uh, kind of from Eastern Europe over to Italy, where Rome would be. Uh, So if you want to travel by land, you'd go right to the city of Philippi. It was a place where a lot of Roman veterans would have been, some soldiers. So there would have been a sizable um, Roman contingent probably in the city, maybe even within the, um, the church. So when Paul talks about uh, people from Caesar's household greet you in this letter to the Philippians, that there might have been some, some relational connections where that meant something, uh, again, because of Roman influence. I think it's also important to know, we'll mention this a little more in the sermon, that slavery common in the Roman Empire, at some points um, exceeding 50% of all the people of the Roman Empire were slaves, And Philippi probably had more than that. And so he's writing to a church that in the kind of socioeconomic world would have probably not been considered wealthy or affluential. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he mentions that out of their extreme poverty, they gave. When he talks about the churches in Macedonia, that would include Philippi. Uh, Just if you're wondering what the the name Philippi comes from Alexander the Great's dad, Philip, the second of Macedonia. That's the city's name. So Philippians is a weird name, but if you recognize it's just named after Philip, uh, it might help you remember the name and say it correctly. So Paul writes a letter, and it's, it's kind of a normalish letter in the sense of its form and, and, and how it flows. So you start a letter. Most of you, if you write a letter to someone, I, I, at least I remember this in elementary grade school, you know, it's like, you know, dear so-and-so, You know, and then you kind of have a formal introduction, and then you have the body of your letter, and you close it with, you know, some greetings of affirmation like, you know, yours always or sincerely or whatever. Um, The the Greco-Roman world had that same type of thing, and you'll see initially he says Paul and Timothy. That probably means Timothy is his secretary writing it. Um, That's often the case with Paul. In fact, there are a couple times where he makes that really explicitly clear that even though he is the author of the content, he's not the one whose pen is moving the words. Um, so Paul writes this in the context of he and Timothy. He's in jail when he writes this. It's really clear in chapter 1 that he's writing this from jail, probably Roman jail. And he's, he's in Rome, in prison. He's in prison, he says, for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He's, he's, a, he's a prisoner of Christ. So he's writing this letter as he sits and sometimes I, I do wonder, like with the Apostle Paul, if he's so busy, the Lord's just like, hey, you need a timeout to write. You're going to go to prison, so you can stop talking to people and stop preaching and get your pen busy. And, and so Paul is in prison. This is you know, towards the end of his life. If you think about the Apostle Paul's ministry, somewhere in the mid-60s, he goes dark. And we don't know, we don't know exactly the nature of how his life ends. We think he's probably beheaded in Rome. Uh, this wouldn't have been very long before that, just a few years before he passes off the scene. So he's writing from prison. Some of you, if you've read through Philippians, would notice this constant theme of joy. Um, I think it's a sub-theme. I don't think it's a central theme. But as you think, th- think through who the apostle is, he's writing from prison to encourage other people. I just want you to think about that for a second. If you were in prison, you would expect people to be encouraging you, being like, hey man, it's okay, cheer up. He is writing from prison to cheer up others who aren't in prison. Um, It's it's helpful for us to, to remember that what the Apostle Paul is doing in his ministry there is recognizing that joy is not something that's based on circumstances, and we'll see that throughout this letter. Let me just use that to introduce the theme this morning, I think, of the introduction to this letter, is that the Apostle Paul is challenging throughout this whole letter the Philippian church to think about the world correctly, and in so doing, they would find tranquility. And I don't mean some type of Zen tranquility, I mean the tranquility that he would mention in chapter four when he says the peace of God that passes understanding, the type, the type of Tranquility that comes from a contentment that's, that's rooted in the strength that Christ alone can give. The type of joy that comes from joy in the Lord, not in circumstances, or maybe we could say despite circumstances. This is why later in this chapter, he'll talk about all of those who are in Christ are not only called to believe with him, but verse 29 says, and to suffer for his sake. So in a letter that talks of joy, that calls the Christian to have joy, that calls the Christian towards peace, he initially starts out by saying, hey, I'm in prison, I'm writing to you to encourage you because you're suffering, and in fact, you should know this, all who are following Christ will suffer. So he's calling them to suffer, but have a mindset that sees beyond the suffering to what God is really doing, and thereby to have joy in it, to be at peace with with it, to find satisfaction with a life that, in terms of the measure of this world, isn't joyful. But if they can see with spiritual eyes what God is doing, they would have joy. Maybe just as, a, as an analogy, in the Old Testament there's this character, it's Elisha's servant, And and one morning, waking up, they find themselves surrounded by an army filled with chariots and military soldiers that are going to conquer and take captive the prophet Elisha, and Elisha's not worried at all. And the servant of Elisha's like, shouldn't we be troubled by this? And Elisha prays and says, Lord, open up his eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes, and what does he see guarding and protecting the city the prophet's in, this little village, chariots and flames of fire that surround them from heaven, protecting them from these hostile forces. Immediately you can imagine that that servant felt peace. Because while he didn't know that he was protected by God, he was anxious He was worried, he was fearful, and then upon seeing what God really had to protect them, the armies of heaven protecting him, he was at peace. It's almost as though Paul is doing the same thing for the Philippians. That there's suffering going on, he is suffering, they are suffering. Epaphroditus almost dies for the work of Christ, and he says, hey, you need to see what you don't see. And seeing it, then you can have a genuine peace. That's not... with the circumstances of life because those things change. It's not anchored to how you feel about the circumstances because that will change. But the true peace of the Christian, the joy that we have is lasting and unbreakable when it's anchored to the things of Christ. And that's what, that's what the apostle is doing through this letter. So Christ is the hero of the letter. The call of the Philippians is to recognize the grace and the goodness and, and the faithfulness of Christ so that they might have joy in the middle of trials. Having said all that, let me introduce you to the text this morning by reading verses 1 and 2. Scripture says, Paul and Timothy, servants, let me just retranslate that now. Servants is the wrong translation there, it should be slaves. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look at this text, I I think maybe we could at least title the sermon, Slaves and Saints. Slaves and Saints. You want a little tagline to put on that the mindset that protects our peace slaves and saints the mindset that protects our peace uh, the, the challenge of a text like this is to recognize that paul is doing more than merely saying dear philippians but my guess is in your annual bible reading when you're trying to trek through three or four chapters in a morning while grabbing some coffee and getting to work and not getting there late That you read a section like this, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, and you're rolling on before you even stop to consider what slaves of Jesus Christ really means to the apostle, and what he's calling for us to recognize about who we are. Initially, I think Paul is trying to teach them to embrace that idea of slavery, and all of us, therefore, should recognize that right thinking about our identity in Christ is essential to having that type of peace, joy, and tranquility in the middle of suffering. So right thinking about our identity is where he starts. Right thinking about our identity. So who are you? What, is you, what are you identifying yourself as? The apostle says he identifies himself as what? A slave. Now the reason your English translation says servants is because slavery in America is different than Rome. Are started through kidnapping, which the Bible says is wicked sin in the Old Testament. It was energized by a failed anthropology or unbiblical anthropology that would indicate that racial distinctions are actually matters of superiority or better than qualities, which is nonsense biblically and leads to all sorts of sin of race and prejudice and should be always condemned by the believer. And so I think in an effort, our modern English translations want to drive a wedge between the evils of modern slavery that you would have seen in Europe, the UK, and the US uh, through the 17th and 18th centuries, and the biblical idea of slavery that was neither driven by race, nor ethnicity, nor prejudice. Having said that, though, there are some similarities that shouldn't be ignored. A slave had absolutely no freedom of his own, but was bound to the will and the whims of his master. Okay, so that's where servant gets it wrong. A servant is someone who serves, but does so freely, which means their will is still an independent will that submits purposefully to someone else, almost like an employee. If you were working for an employer that asked you to do something that was unethical, I hope you would refuse because you're still a free agent. Well, slaves weren't free agents. They were bound to another, to please another, to serve another. So when Paul says we are slaves, he is telling the Philippians that we have lost the rights and the prerogatives of free people. This is somewhat interesting in light of the history of the Philippian church and how Paul gets beaten, which is a violation of his rights as a free citizen. They assumed he was nothing more than. Most other people who weren't of, of kind of the connections and the, the, the hoity-toity and elite, that he was no one with rights. Instead, he actually had Roman citizen rights of a free man. They treated him poorly, and he requires them to crawl on their knees to him and release him from prison. Well, he's exerting his rights on the civil realm, something he would never do before his Lord because he's a slave of Jesus Christ, bound to do the will of his master. In fact, you'll see this, if you're just to follow down a few verses, you'll see that he looks at at himself as this servant of Christ, that, that, that he would live for Christ in such a way that he says, for me to live is Christ. So so much has he lost that kind of free independence that he no longer thinks of his life as his. For him to live is as though the will of Christ has totally replaced him, and he does whatever Christ wants, so much that he can say for me to live is, in fact, Christ to live through me." That's what it means for him to be a slave. And Paul is not embarrassed about this. He's not hiding his slave brand. He's declaring to the Philippian Church, "I'm a slave. Because the integrity, the caliber, and the glory of his master, Jesus Christ. See, to be a slave of a bad master is a shameful thing, but to be a slave of Jesus Christ is, in fact, a position of honor and glory. And you can imagine that this would be the case, that a slave often carried the shame or the glory of his master. To be a slave in Caesar's household was probably a place of dignity and honor. To be a slave to a poor man, would be to be a a dangerous and life-threatening slave in the sense that you might not have a meal coming for a week. Paul looks at himself and says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Let me just encourage you all that if right thinking about our identity begins with this thought, I am a slave. It will revolutionize what you expect in this life. If your master calls you to a hard path, What does the slave say? Yes, sir. But we should all know that a master is expected to both protect and provide for his slaves. And if this is the framework that Paul describes our relationship to our Savior with, then what we can expect is that when we are walking in obedience to the Lord, he promises to provide and protect and I think, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that often we wonder if the Lord will take care of us. The answer is, if we're his slave, living like his slave, yes, he will take care of us. I think the way we view church, the way we view uh, our attendance and our, and our contribution to the church is often something different than a slave. What would a slave expect if the Lord tells them to come and join themselves and help fulfill the mission of a body of people like this? What do you expect, he asks of you? In America, we look at churches as consumers. We want a pastor that's interesting and doesn't preach too long. We want the sermons to hit home every week. Clearly, in our church, we have different expectations about the length of the sermon, but moving on from that... We have expectations about how enjoyable it is if they have programs for our kids, whether or not uh, it's going to meet the needs that we have. We want a church where they have lots of ability to accomplish a mission, which means lots of people are giving, but we don't want them to ask us to give. We want the nursery to be full of competent workers, but we don't want to be always in the nursery. We want fantastic Bible teachers who spend lots of time in preparation and teach our kids and encourage us in Bible studies. But we don't have the time to contribute that type of teaching preparation to do it ourselves. We want a campus that looks clean and sharp and invites the world to it, but our Saturdays are really busy, so we can never clean. You see how in, a, in America we don't think we're slaves? I realize that most of you have the heart of a slave. You recognize that you are a servant to Jesus Christ, to obey and enslave yourself to his will. I just want to encourage you that when you complain, you're a bad slave. When you pull back because you don't feel like something, when you know the Lord to be honored by it, you're a bad slave. And as people who are slaves without a master breathing down our neck, cracking a literal whip, we often aren't very good slaves. So consider, do you identify yourself as a slave? Do you identify yourself as a slave when it comes to the ministry and mission of the Lord for you? The reason Paul is calling the Philippians to recognize this thought, I think if we look through the whole arguments of the letter, as he's trying to challenge and encourage and call them to understand this, if you go to chapter 2, you'll see the same word used, of our glorious Savior. It says, have this mind. He's talking about the mindset of Christ. Think like Christ thinks. Verse 6, who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto for his own benefit. Okay, so he is equal with God because he is God. And yet he... Did not consider his high status, his divinity, to be something that was merely used for his benefit. Instead, he set aside the benefits he had a right to, verse 7, empties himself, and takes on the form of, same word there, do loss, the thing he took on, what? Slavery. So here in Philippians 2, he's applying how he sees the world for himself. And Timothy, we are slaves. Oh, by the way, you all should have the mindset of Christ who was also a slave. He is not calling us to something that not only is he not living, but the example of Christ who says, come and be like me, take up your cross, follow me. This is who we are. We are slaves before our master, before our king, before our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you identify yourself as a slave? Or has the consumer mentality of this culture permeated the way you measure your involvement? The way you measure your parenting of your children? The way you serve your wife? The way you work at your work? Number two right, thinking not only about our identity, that was number one, right, thinking about our position, right? They're Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, first, let me just, uh, let me, like, walk through who he's talking to. He says, to all the Philippians, right, to all of you who are in Philippi, and then he pulls out two subsets, so he's talking to the whole team. And then he says, and part of that team includes two officers of the church, the overseers and the deacons. So the point would be that the church has a lot of people in it. Some of those people are elders or overseers or pastors. That's the same. I think throughout the New Testament, those are used interchangeably, kind of emphasizing different thoughts about the office. So he's saying something like this. Part of the church of Philippi, part of the regular people are overseers. Overseers are not above and outside of the flock. They are part of it. I think it's a a good reminder for those in our church who are spiritual leaders that we are still the church, not apart from it. I think good pastoral leadership happens from within the flock. A pastor does not say, come and follow after me. I hope you can see me as I pursue Christ without you. Nor does he stand behind the flock living a lazy and sinful life saying, hey, keep pursuing Jesus. Boys, you're doing good. But from within the flock, he says, come with me as we follow Christ together. That's what the overseer and shepherd, the elders do within the church. And so they serve the church from within it, part of it it's not just them, deacons are called out, and I think this would be a good reminder that deacons are not merely just ushers who hold the door, but they're people of spiritual competence who have influence within the church, and so they are marked out as special servants here. In fact, that word deacon means servant, it leads to some confusion at the end of uh, Romans when you have a woman named as a servant. Uh, Some people, I think, incorrectly think she's a deacon. Um, I think here you see the deacons, it uses that office of these people are, are noted servants filled with the Spirit, Acts would say, and competent to serve the needs of the church. So elders are overseers, it's a management position where they're managing the church from within its body. Deacons are those who are servants, particularly to the needs of that body. And I'd say generally, so that the elders can be spiritually shepherding. The deacons serve the physical needs so the pastors don't get diverted, but that they stay ministering the word faithfully. Having said all of that, notice how he identifies that whole group of people. The regular church people, the elders, the deacons, they're all called saints. Now some of you with a Catholic background are immediately thinking incorrectly about that term. We're not talking about dead people who've seen some miraculous work and have now gone on to glory, who we pray to, that they might pray to Mary, that, they might, that Mary might pray to Jesus, that Jesus might talk to the Father, that we might get some benefits. That is not what's happening here. Okay, what's happening here is he's calling all of the living people in Philippi, who clearly have some sins in them if you read the rest of the book, holy people. He identifies them as holy it says, to all the holy people in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, he identifies the church as holy. How can he do this? Well, because they are holy, and maybe we can think of it in two distinct ways. Holiness speaks to the set-apartness, the sacredness. That is, these people have been summoned from out of sin and this world to walk in life in fellowship with God. They are his people, redeemed to him. So in the Old Testament, you would see God using this to distinguish Israel from the rest of the nations. You are a holy nation. He doesn't say that because their behavior is righteous. He says that because like a man who, who gets a bride... She is now special to him, uniquely his, unlike any other woman. She is holy to him, set apart, consecrated to him. In the same way, this text tells us that all of the believers in Philippi are distinctly separated out of the world unto God as his precious possession and not to be married to the world. It is on this basis then that God makes us holy so that we could recognize all of those believers in Philippi are dedicated to God, set apart to him, and that God in that then has made them to be holy, justified them, made them righteous. You could not fellowship with God were he not to forgive you all your sins, You could not fellowship with God were he not to give you a status as perfectly righteous. A status earned from Christ by his righteousness and granted to everyone who believes so that we are the very righteousness of Christ as we stand in the presence of God. So this is who we are as holy people. This is who the church in Philippi is. So again, as you think through what this means and their relationship with God, suffering does not indicate God's abandonment. We are sacred to him and made holy by him, and therefore suffering is not to be measured by us as somehow God breaking up with us and leaving us and abandoning us and letting us drift in the wind of suffering. We are holy to him, made holy by him, and therefore we are in status, saints before him. This is who we all are if we have trusted in Christ. Okay, so we need to have a right understanding of our identity, a right understanding of our position, and third, we need to have a right understanding about our support, about our support. Look again in the text. To all the saints, verse 2, Grace to you and peace. Almost feel the fresh wind in the Philippian conscience as they see those two words. If you've ever gone through suffering, oftentimes what you don't feel is peace. They're not entirely opposite, but boy, they feel like opposites. When the thunderstorms are going off in your home and there is friction, usually there's a loss of peace. If the doctor calls you up and says, hey, You know, so that scan we took last week, well, we've got some problems. It feels like peace is gone. When you look at your bank account and you see your credit card balances rising and you see your cash balances dropping and your employer says, hey, work is short, why don't you stay home this week? You have no peace. When you're watching your kids walk away from the Lord, you lose your peace. But before he gets that word peace, what does he call them to? He says, grace to you. Grace is, is this summary word. Now, think they're all Christians that he's writing to. He's writing to believers who are already saved, he's already identified them as saints. So when he says grace to you, he's not calling for saving grace. He's not calling for the grace of forgiveness that makes us holy. They're already holy, they're already saints. He's calling for the type of grace that strengthens them in the middle of the pressures of this life. He's calling for the type of grace that enables them to walk with the Lord when when faith wants to give up. He's talking about the type of grace that strengthens them to find joy when life hurts. The type of grace that causes them to love others more than themselves and to be humble so that they serve others considering everyone better than themselves. This is the type of grace that the rest of the letter calls us to. It's the type of grace we need every day. It's the type of grace when you wake up tomorrow morning and God has given you another day and breath in your lungs and your heart is still beating and you're like, I cannot get through this. God, give me grace, is what you pray. It's that type of grace he's wishing on them. He's saying, grace... From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already shooting shots at at the theological errors of the Philippian culture. Who is Lord for the Philippian culture? Now, I'm not saying Philippian church. Hear that differently. Well, as a bunch of loyalists in a Roman colony, they would have emperor worship. They would say, Caesar is Lord And at the beginning of this letter, he is saying grace comes from God and from God the Son. But here he goes right after the title, Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because the Romans have Caesar as their Lord. And as God is redeeming men and women out of the Roman Empire and of the false emperor worship, he says we will forever sing a different anthem, Jesus is Lord. So that by the time you get to chapter 2, after Jesus being a slave is exalted, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether in heaven or on earth, and they will all declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And all of the ex Roman soldiers, all of those who had been blinded in emperor worship, realize that for eternity, even the Caesars who say they are Lord will repent and say, Jesus alone is Lord. This is what Paul is calling them to recognize right now in our culture. The Philippian church feels like they are subdued and oppressed and suffering. And he calls them to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gives grace because he is Lord. He doesn't just provide grace, he provides peace. And Paul distinguishes those words. Notice that he says grace to you and peace. Sometimes there's words that we kind of like lump together and we forget them. We forget they're, they're, they're different concepts. In the Old Testament, you would have a Hebrew person saying this as they're, they're greeting or saying goodbye. They would say shalom. You know what shalom means in Hebrew? Peace. It speaks to the whole person being at peace and in a state of wholeness and goodness. It, he, he first says grace to you, but the outcome of grace is peace. Some of you have had the misfortune of running out of gas on the highway. Have you, when you see it coming and you start Googling for a gas station nearby and you're like, you know, like the gauge is sitting there, it's on empty. Actually, it's usually a little bit below empty. Right? And, and you're getting anxious Grace is knowing your gas tank will never end. It will never get empty. And so it gives you rest in your soul. You're not worried about running out of gas spiritually. You're not worried about not having enough resources. You're not worried about tomorrow because the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. So you come to chapter 4 and he says something like, the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds through, through what? Through Christ Jesus. You don't get peace if Christ hasn't saved you. So God is the one who gives it to us. He gives it to us on the basis of Christ's work. So here we have the, the, the Trinity at work, and I would say it like this, although he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. He's, kind to, he's, he's exalting Christ as a, as a central theme in the whole letter, but you have God giving us grace through the provision of Jesus Christ and applying it to us through the ministry of the Spirit. God gives peace, and it passes understanding. As I, don't, I don't think this is the type of peace that the world ever knows. This is not the type of peace an unbeliever can ever have. This is not the type of peace you get when you're not walking in the word of God. It is not the type of peace you know if you're not walking in obedience to your master as his slave. It is not the type of peace you ever get if you don't have the spiritual eyes that scripture gives you to see the world through the lens of God's supporting grace. It is a type of peace that is robbed when you only look at what you can do. It is the type of peace you have when the measure of what you will accomplish for God is only measured by your bank account and your own resources. It is the type of peace that is robbed from you when you see what you want accomplished in your home, the salvation of your children, the restoration of a hurting marriage, and you think this can never happen. Well, it will never happen without the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Christian has peace. It's because we choose to see the world with the eyes and the lens of a true believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just see if I can frame out the book again. Our identity as slaves, our position as holy in Christ, and our support through God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the Christocentric nature of this introduction. We are slaves of whom? Jesus Christ. We're slaves of him and we are holy in him, right? We are his holy people in Christ. And then he takes this Old Testament concept of shalom, and rather than saying we have peace from God, he says, and Jesus Christ. He's calling our attention to our Savior that we might run to him, hold him, and find rest in him. Because this is what the apostles, is doing in his own life as he sits in a Roman prison. This is what the Philippians need to hear. Just consider. I, I walked through the whole book, and was trying to, to, to identify all of the ways it calls us to Christ. So uh, forgive me if this is a little bit choppy, but just follow. Epaphroditus dies, nearly dies, excuse me, for the work of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 30. Paul is happy to be imprisoned for the cause of Christ in, verse, in chapter 113. Paul says that his only hope was that he would honor Christ whether by life or by death in chapter 1 verse 20. He considers all things lost for the incomparable joy of having and gaining Christ so that all things might lead him to be conformed to the sufferings of Christ in chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. How can he accomplish this? How can Paul pursue this? How can he call the Philippians to follow him in this path of Christ centeredness? Because he knows it's Christ who gives him strength. Chapter 4, verse 13. It is through Jesus Christ that God gives us peace, chapter 4, verse 7. We have encouragement only in Christ, chapter 2, verse 1. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is confident that the Spirit of Christ will deliver him from his current situation in jail and persecution, chapter 1, verse 19. It is through the Lord that we stand firm, chapter 4, verse 1. As God supplies every need according to the riches of Christ's glory, chapter 4, verse 19. How can Paul make these audacious claims? Because God has highly exalted Jesus. given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the angels of heaven sing the song of his lordship and the halls of hell ring with declarations that he is Lord forever. This is who our Savior is. This Jesus who died on the cross for us the one who died that he might forgive our sins if we would come to him in repentance from our sins and faith in his work on the cross. This Jesus will, by the same power that enables him to subdue all things under himself, chapter 3, verse 21, will transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. And Paul, who's suffered, who's been beaten, who's been broken, who probably has eye problems, who's sitting rotting in Roman jail, says, I will be glorified like him. Because he is king of kings, lord of lords. So we know, as he calls the Philippians to labor in the grace of Christ, to be blameless in the day of Christ. When he calls them to live according to the pattern of Christ, so that our life life might be worthy of the gospel, he is doing nothing more than merely reminding them, you are slaves of our great and glorious Christ. Live for him. This might be where Philippians 4.13 is best quoted. Not in the athletic field, not in some lame sharpie marker writing that says Philippians 4.13, on someone's football cleats, But in this thought, how can you possibly face this world and all of the suffering coming at you? It is this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I do not know what you're facing. Whether the Lord has given you the sorrow of a miscarriage whether you're going through financial crisis, whether your children never obey you, you would say, whether you're watching a parent slowly fade away from this life, I do not know what you're facing. I don't know if it's a loved one who doesn't know Jesus and you see them just firming and hardening their heart against him. But I know that it is our Lord who gives peace. He does so as he supplies grace. He does this for his slaves who identify as his holy people by running to him and pursuing holiness through him. This is how he begins a letter to a church that's hurting. You're hurting, discouraged, and someone comes to you and says, Hey, I just want to remind you something. <clears throat> You're a slave. The reason. You're so discouraged about your hurting is because you think you're more important than you are. You have too high opinion of yourself. Your master's called you to a path of suffering. Suck it up. You're a slave. But he's good. He knows how to suffer. He suffered for your sake. He suffered that your suffering might have meaning. And he will give you grace in your suffering and peace in the middle of it. He is a good master. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is good. But you think too highly of yourself. Think right. He is doing good. Think right. You're a slave. Think right. You're a holy slave. Think right. The Lord of Lords is your king and master. There is hope. There is grace. There is peace for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I ask that you would encourage and strengthen us with it. Father, if there is someone who looks into Christianity and sees it wrongly, they might think of all the benefits it brings, not recognizing that most of those benefits in a letter like this are the promises and provisions of strength in order that we can fight hard to do right in the middle of suffering, in the middle of our own struggles with our own sinfulness. And that the real joys, the real rest, and the sweetness of relaxation are offered to us in the life to come. But in this life, we are offered your strength and grace and support so that we might endure, so that we might suffer well. Father, I ask that you would show people the beauty of your son in this letter to the Philippians that seeing our great and glorious Jesus Christ and Savior and Lord in the person of your Son, that we would be one again and again to trusting in him, to loving him, to giving him loyalty where we may have been weak, to obeying him when sin seems pleasant, to repenting when we want to hold on to our pride and sin, to suffering with kindness, to being patient when we feel like we are ready to give up, to being strong in the Lord rather than our own personal abilities and competencies. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus. For those who know not the goodness of Jesus Christ, who do not know his forgiveness, who have never been saved from the guilt and the condemnation their sin will bring, I ask that they would see the Lord Savior and trust in him. They might be saved from their sin, forgiven and cleansed and made righteous so that they too might be a holy person, devoted and consecrated to you, saved from the penalty coming. We pray these things, Father, because as you have planned Jesus to receive glory and honor at the end of the age, we want our lives to be glorifying and honoring him now, so we pray these things would be done in our body throughout this series as we study this letter, and that you work through your spirit and through the pen of Paul. We ask that you be honored in this. In Jesus' name, amen.